Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Ocean of Death. It was a rainy Tuesday in early spring when the devil called my wife. Of course, at the time, I didn't know it was the devil on the phone. I would only find that out later. I never learned what he said to her, if he said anything at all. She was sitting in her favorite chair playing solitaire when the phone rang. Our son, Leonard, answered the phone, and a few seconds later told his mother that she had a phone call. She rose from her chair, walked across the room, and pressed the phone against her ear, its messy coils of cord dangling halfway to the ground. She held her position, listening intently to whatever was coming through the line, her gaze fixed on some indefinable point in space. A few seconds later, she hung the phone in its cradle, walked out the front door, filled her pockets with rocks, and drowned herself in the sea behind our house. Leonard never spoke again. I was in the garage when it happened, working on an old Triumph soft tail I was restoring. I heard the front door shut, and I figured Leonard was going out to play with his friends. I called out to him, but heard no answer. When I emerged from the garage, wiping the grease from my hands with a tattered old rag, my eyes were drawn to the beach, its rocky surface slick with rain. There, out amongst the frothy, white surf, I could just make out my wife's figure as wave upon wave crashed over her. I began walking down the gravel drive, my face defined by confusion. She waded deeper and deeper, until the freezing waves were crashing over her head. The violet sweater she was wearing got waterlogged and bunched up over her face. Her narrow, fair-skinned arms went limp, their movements dictated by the violent onslaught of waves. I don't know when I started to run. I only noticed when I was already running. When things were not about to go wrong, but had already gone wrong. When life had seamlessly slipped from business as usual to the brink of tragedy. Sprinting breathlessly across the rocky beach, I dove into the blackening surf. I thrashed amongst the waves for what felt like hours, but was probably only a few desperate minutes, until something cried out in me that she was gone. If there had been a chance for me to save my wife, it had already passed. I swam back to shore and stood, squinting at the horizon, trying to see if I could still make out her figure. But all I could see was the endless black ocean and the endless gray sky. 
a landscape of wanton cruelty. When I stumbled back into the front door a few minutes later, Leonard had already called 911. The dispatcher had been alarmed by his refusal to speak and had sent a patrol car out. I sat down on the couch, drenching it with seawater, as I explained to the officer what I'd seen. The officer got immediately in touch with the Coast Guard, but it would still be three days before they found Marilyn's body. She was drifting in the current a quarter mile offshore, a few handfuls of stones still keeping her body below the water's surface. When they pulled her out, her skin was gelatinous. The sea life had eaten away at the soft flesh, but when I arrived at the morgue to identify her body, I found her to be remarkably intact. She was still my Marilyn. I cried over her body, pleaded with her to tell me why she'd done it, but no sound escaped her decaying lips. She just lay there on the cold metal table, looking up at me with glassy, pale eyes. The coroner, who'd been waiting outside as I sobbed and begged my wife's corpse for answers, came back in the room and gently urged me to go home and get some rest. I complied, albeit begrudgingly, and went home to deliver the news to Leonard. He accepted the news stoically, his lip quivering as he tried to hold it stiff. It was his third day of not speaking at that point, and I still thought of it as something he would eventually snap out of. Still, I wanted to accommodate my son, so I took a piece of paper and a pen and handed them to Leonard. What happened before she left the house? I asked, gesturing for him to write an answer. He looked at the paper for a moment and began to write. It was then that I learned about the phone call. Who was it? I asked. On the phone. But Leonard didn't know. He only shrugged and shook his head. Whoever it was, he wrote, after a moment of consideration. He had an odd voice. It was high-pitched. It was like he had the vocal cords of a child or something. Leonard lifted his focus from the table and looked back at me. I sat, feeling somewhat nauseous, pondering what he'd written. Did Mom say anything? I asked. As he sat there and thought, I could see tears accumulating in the corners of Leonard's eyes. He lowered the pen to the paper and scrawled my wife's last words. What have I done? It was all she said. What have I done? It was her only explanation for her final, unthinkable actions. She hung up the phone and muttered that final utterance before marching out of the house and drowning herself in the ocean. For the rest of the night, I wrung out my brain like an old wet rag, trying to figure out what my wife might have been referring to. She wasn't a secretive person, and I certainly didn't suspect that she was hiding from some dark event in her past. But I also didn't anticipate her to be the type to, well, you know. The truth still stung, still felt too terrible to be true. That night as I slept, I dreamt of a great wave of blood crashing upon the rocky shore of our beach, that little section of our property that butts up against the ocean, that stretch of rocky land, a place that my family had long associated with carefree summer days. It was shown to me beneath the spectacle of a wall of blood, 
a great crimson wave. I tried to move, but something was holding me there, suspended in a state of powerlessness. What could I do but watch? What could I do but stand there and watch my wife drown? Nothing in the world had ever made me feel so helpless. In the days that followed, I remained convinced that whoever had called my wife on the phone was somehow connected to her preceding actions. Whether they had encouraged her or planted some insane idea in her head, I didn't know. I called the telephone company and asked for a list of our incoming calls from that day. They told me that the first and only call of that day wasn't incoming, but outgoing, to 911. How was that possible? Leonard and Marilyn had both ostensibly heard the phone ring, at least Leonard had, and they'd both seemingly pressed the phone to their ears and heard a man speak, a man whose voice neither of them recognized, as far as I knew. Yet, the phone company claimed to have no record of an incoming call from that day. I knew that something horrific, something of terrible significance, had occurred on that phone call but I had no way of finding out what it was, or even of proving that it existed. So, I felt as though the trail had ended. My focus shifted from solving the mystery of my wife's tragic death to raising the son that she had left behind. Leonard and I got used to the dynamics of our new, smaller family. He continued to communicate only by writing, and I stood by with support and encouragement letting him know that he could talk whenever he was ready. But soon enough, something came along to disrupt our little family unit. I stumbled across a newspaper article when I was doing some work in a town a few miles to the north. It said, Mystery surrounds local man's falling death. The article was about a man named Bruce Tillman, who fell off an ocean cliff after receiving a mysterious phone call. Just as in my wife's case, the phone company had no record of the call coming in. But Tillman's wife insisted on it. She claimed to have been the one to pick up the phone, after all. She thought that perhaps her husband had known something he shouldn't have, that he had been killed off by some agency with the power to omit their activity from the call records. I thought she was on to something, but I knew even then that it went deeper than that. That it was tied to something... evil something that didn't even exist in the hearts of men, something with the power to break the human will. I decided to reach out to Bruce Tillman's widow. With a little effort, I found her profile on Facebook and sent her a message. I explained who I was, what had happened to Marilyn, the odd similarities between my wife's death and her husband's. Then I asked if she'd be willing to discuss our experiences. Two days went by, and I still hadn't heard anything back. I was beginning to feel a bit foolish for sending the message. What if she thought I was some kind of unhinged nutcase, someone who saw symbols and everything? But finally, on the third day, she responded. And she definitely didn't perceive me in the light that I'd feared she would. It was quite the opposite, in fact. I got the sense, reading her message that she'd been waiting a long time for someone to ask her what she really thought about her husband's death. She had been waiting for someone to take her suspicion seriously. The following day, I drove up to Mrs. Tillman's house so we could speak in person. The ocean sprawled out to my left, 
and I watched waves cascading along the coast as I drove. There was an unmistakable clarity about the ocean. I felt like I could see every crest and trough between me and the horizon. Pain has a way of making you see so clearly. When I arrived at the Tillman house, it was early in the afternoon. Rustic paneling adorned the walls of the residence, and its simple functional design looked right at home in the lush coastal forest. Mrs. Tillman sat on the porch holding a warm mug of something in her lap. I watched the steam rise before her face, narrow and sleek, as I approached. Her hair was brown, held tight in a messy bun, and her eyes betrayed a sullen atmosphere that reminded me of what I saw every time I looked in the mirror. As we sat down on her porch and talked, I didn't get the idea that she was someone who wanted to believe there was some heinous secret at the center of her husband's death. I got the feeling that she believed there was only because she had exhausted every other avenue. She'd sought every rational explanation for Bruce's tragic passing, and still she'd come up empty-handed. It was only then that she became convinced something unspeakable had happened. The newspapers said that you were the one that answered the phone, I began, after we'd gotten the pleasantries out of the way. Do you remember anything about the person's voice? Person, she lamented, her voice hitching a bit. It wasn't a person. I may not know much about whatever that was on the phone, but I know that it wasn't human. It sounded... Her voice trailed off as she thought for a moment. It sounded like one of those poorly designed voice generators. Like when a computer program tries to recreate human speech, but sounds kind of off. It was high-pitched, like it was trying to sound innocent, but I could sense something. Something behind all that. Something cold. Something hateful. There was a depth in her eyes as she spoke. Her face had adopted a look of surrender. It was as if she was trying to relinquish the events from her memory. I handed him the phone, she went on, though something was telling me not to. He listened for a moment, standing there, silent. Then he laid the phone in its cradle and turned to head out the door. I stood and tried to stop him. I was already on edge, already knew something wrong had happened. I asked him who it was on the phone. He turned to me with a look in his eyes that I'll never forget, a look of utter abandon. It was the devil, he told me. I thought he was joking at first, but, well, you know what happened next. My head was spinning. I didn't know what to say, so I muttered something that hopefully sounded like condolences. In the newspaper article, you mentioned that you thought someone had your husband killed, and they had covered it up by wiping the records from the call. Do you still think something like that happened? She thought for a minute, sipping her tea and listening to the distant sound of the ocean. Back when the newspaper interviewed me, she said, I still thought the devil was a euphemism for someone. I thought he said the devil because it was someone he was afraid of, someone he thought was too dangerous for me to know the identity of. But in the weeks since, I've thought about it. Sometimes I wonder if he wasn't speaking metaphorically if he actually heard the voice of the devil, if Satan spoke to him on that phone call. On the drive home that afternoon, I wondered if she was right. What if it had been the devil on the phone?
And if it was, what had he said? My imagination spun into a terrible landscape. I thought about all the dreadful things the devil could have said to my wife, and to Bruce. If it was the devil, though, I imagined whatever he had to say was too awful for my mind to even conjure. Something impeccably wicked, something so heinous that the mere act of hearing it spoken would send you to your death. It was a terrifying thing to consider, but somehow, I was even more terrified of it not being true. What if I'm being misled, I wondered? What if the only thing plaguing my wife was depression? What if all this business about chasing the devil is really just a way for me to attribute her suicide to something evil? What if I was embarking on a witch hunt with the sole purpose of explaining the ordinary suffering of life? All so I could live with the fact that I could do nothing to save her. So I could live with the guilt of knowing that I stood helplessly by while my wife slowly drowned herself beneath those dark, freezing waves. After my visit with Mrs. Tillman, I spent some time thinking about whether I could really afford to pursue the mystery of my wife's death any further. It had taken an obvious emotional toll on me, but an even bigger mental one. I had never felt closer to insanity than I did then. Everything I thought I knew to be true was suddenly up for debate, and nothing was off the table. The more I thought about Mrs. Tillman's eyes, and the devil, and the specter of Marilyn disappearing into the waves, the more I felt like I was losing myself. I was coming no closer to the truth, but my proximity to madness was shrinking each day. And so, just as I had after Marilyn had died, I tried to release the matter from my conscience. But there it was again to ambush me, not a week later. I was awoken by Leonard one night. He ran into my bedroom, and upon rousing me from my slumber, set about writing me a simple and hurried note. I fumbled for my glasses and turned on the bedside lamp. I read the note, in which Leonard told me that he'd had a nightmare. I calmed him and walked him back to his room. There I checked under his bed and in the closet to assure him that there were no monsters present and that he could sleep safely. Over breakfast the following morning, I asked Leonard if he felt up to explaining his dream to me. He nodded obediently and started scribbling. When he finished writing, he slid the paper across the table to me. It was a weird dream, he had written. It felt real really real. I felt serious that I was there. I think he meant to write certain instead of serious, but I read on all the same. I was in the forest, all trees around me, the floor muddy under my rain boots. It wasn't sunny, so I think it was nighttime. I hear a sound, and I look, and there is a phone booth, an old rusty one, just like they have outside Dale Mason's bait and tackle. The phone went ring, ring, but there was nobody around except me. I looked up at the note. Did you answer it, Leonard? I said, looking at him intently. Did you answer the phone? He shook his head vigorously before taking the piece of paper back and adding to his note. No, I didn't answer the phone, he wrote. I didn't answer because I knew who was calling. Even though I couldn't see them, I knew who it was. It was the same person that called Mom. The same person that called her on the phone before she went swimming and didn't come home. I swallowed hard and hugged the child to my chest. 
I wondered what Leonard thought of me. Did he look up to me the way I looked up to my own father? Probably not. I remember being on a camping trip with my dad once as a child. The campfire was beginning to smolder, and my father reached right into the fire pit and moved the glowing timber around. He paid no mind to the risk of burning a finger, just took care of the job. I've often thought of that memory as an example of manhood, of fatherhood, of what men are supposed to do when something needs to be taken care of. But that was nothing like the man I'd become. I never reached into the fire. I just stood and watched. Stood and watched as the fire shrank, and then smoldered, and then went out entirely. Leonard, I said, you said that you thought the dream was real. Did the forest where you saw that phone booth look familiar? Do you think it was around here somewhere? Leonard thought for a moment and then nodded slowly. I could tell the wheels were turning in his head, but it didn't seem like he was trying to remember the location of the phone booth as much as he was trying to determine whether he should reveal it to me or not. He was puckering his lips the way he always did when I asked him a question that he didn't want to answer. Leonard, I said, my tone deepening slightly. If you know where that phone booth is, you need to tell me. He thought for another moment and then picked up the pencil. If I tell you, are you going to go swimming like Mommy did? He wrote. My vision began to blur as my eyes grew watery. No, I said, shaking my head. I promise. I'll never go swimming like Mommy did. He nodded solemnly, seemingly content with my answer. He flipped the paper over and on the backside began to draw a crude map of the forest surrounding our house. On the western edge, he drew a jagged line that represented the shore of the ocean. The forest constituted a large strip to the right, running all the way inland to the foothills at the base of the mountains. Near the center, he drew our house, complete with a chimney and our car parked outside. To the northwest, a ways up from a cluster of walking paths, he drew the rectangular phone booth, he must have been frightened as he drew it, because his hands shook a little, making the lines look jagged. When he finished, he set the pencil down and looked up at me drearily, as if he regretted having told me where the phone booth was. I folded the map and slid it into my pocket. I'll be careful, I told him. I promise. But my words seemed to be of little consolation to him. And who could blame him? The boy had already lost his mother, so of course he was afraid of losing me too but I couldn't allow myself to stand idly by. I could no longer be the father who failed to reach into the fire. I had to do something. So, with Leonard walking despondently back to his room, I grabbed an old backpack and filled it with some basic items. Water, a first aid kit, my cell phone, and an old pistol I got on my 21st birthday. I looked at the contents of the backpack and thought, then I reached into my nightstand and withdrew a dusty old copy of the King James Bible. I threw that into the backpack as well. I wasn't sure what good I thought the Bible would do me, but some part of me couldn't let go of what Bruce Tillman had said, the part about the devil being on the phone. And in that moment, the absurdity of my situation revealed itself to me. I was bringing a Bible and a handgun into the forest, where I hoped to find a phone booth that would lead me to Satan. Had I lost my mind? What proof did I have that any of this was real? 
What proof did I have that I was anything more than a sad, lonely man that couldn't cope with the fact that his wife killed herself? Emptying my mind of all thought, I slung the backpack over my shoulder and walked out the front door. The world darkened significantly as I began treading under the canopy of the forest. Everything was cloaked in shadow. Every crevice and hollow log held the potential for some unimaginable adversary. Every few hundred steps, I pulled out the map and looked at it, considering my proximity to the landmarks my son had drawn. When I neared the spot in the cold, dim forest, my heart began to pound with anticipation. Then I came around the trunk of a fallen evergreen tree, and I spotted it. Standing on the loamy forest floor was a rusting old phone booth. It had a sliding metal door and oval-shaped windows on the two reposing sides. It looked as out of place there as it would have been in the middle of a barren desert or at the bottom of the ocean. I tried, as I stared at it, to convince myself it wasn't real, that I was seeing things, that my guilt and grief had conjured the phone booth as a vision, a spectacle, but nothing more. Even as it began to ring, I tried to persuade myself that it wasn't really there. But no matter what I did, I couldn't block the phone booth out of existence. And likewise, I couldn't prevent myself from trying to answer it, from running over and lifting the dusty phone from its cradle before it stopped ringing. Hello? I asked, my voice quiet and meek. There was no answer, not a verbal one at least, but still I could sense a presence on the other end of the line. I could tell, somehow, that somebody was listening. But it wasn't because I could hear breathing. I could hear no breathing. I could hear nothing at all, in fact. Pressed against my ear, the phone speakers sounded like complete and utter emptiness. It sounded the way I would imagine it to sound if somebody launched a microphone into the most desolate region of outer space. It was the sound of oblivion. The silence of death. What did you say to my wife? I asked. The silence persisted for a few more seconds, and then, like a single lantern against a backdrop of darkness, someone, some thing, began to speak. I told her the truth, the voice said to me. It sounded juvenile, but its pitch was disturbing in some elusive way. When I heard it, I was immediately reminded of the way a rotting animal could smell vaguely sweet sometimes. And what exactly is the truth? I asked. I can tell you, the devil said. If you want to follow in the footsteps of your wife, the truth can be overwhelming in that way. But it's so much better to know, to finally be free, to let go. Why did you do this to her? I asked, my voice a thin whine. If you come down here, I'll tell you. I asked him what that meant, where exactly down here was located. My mind was already conjuring images of the caves of hell, alight with flames. In his jarringly quiet and polite way of speaking, the devil told me that I could follow a path lined by dead branches. It would lead me a little further into the forest, where I would find an abandoned old well. Climb down and you'll find me, he said. As I followed the path of dead branches, I again tried to convince myself that what I was experiencing was delusion. 
but I couldn't shake my conviction that the voice I'd heard on the phone was actually the devil. Even when I tried to consider that it was just a normal person, someone with a deranged sense of humor and some basic voice editing software, I found myself unable to abandon my certainty. What was it that made me so sure? How had I become so adamant that I was about to come face to face with Satan? And what exactly did I expect to happen when I got there? Shoot him? Throw the Bible at him? It was beyond absurd, but still I pressed on, growing more cynical and doubtful with each step. But then I spotted the well, and next to it spotted the pristine coil of fresh rope. The well itself looked ancient, assembled out of sharp black stones which looked almost volcanic in their texture. But the length of rope lying next to it looked almost unused, as if someone had just set it there a moment before. Standing there, gazing down at the black well and feeling the braided rope in my hands, my cynicism and doubt were swept away. And all that was left, as I stared down into that pit, trying to make out the bottom, was the fear that I wouldn't be returning home safe to my son. On one end, the rope was tied snug around the trunk of a nearby tree. I took the other end and tossed it down the well. But before I began rappelling down into the dark entrance to hell, I took the gun out of my backpack and tucked it into the waistband of my pants. I still didn't know what or who I was about to find down there, but I didn't expect them to be hospitable. With each inch that I lowered myself down, the light faded a little more. When I finally reached the bottom, I was engulfed in absolute blackness. The only reason I could tell that I'd made it all the way down was because I could feel the ground, could hear my feet splashing against the muddy surface of the bottom of the well, but I could see nothing. I began feeling around in the darkness, simultaneously anxious to feel something and dreading what I might encounter. Then my hands found an opening. It was circular cut into the stone side of the well at about chest height. I felt around the perimeter of the opening, reached tentatively inside. I couldn't tell where it led, if it led anywhere at all, but I could tell that it was just large enough for me to crawl into. So, despite every bit of pragmatism and logic that was screaming out inside me, I let my backpack fall to the puddle at my feet and pulled myself into the opening. I crawled through the darkness, constantly ignoring the terror of where it might lead me. I hoped the claustrophobic feeling would subside, but I felt confined and agitated all the way. I felt like I could hardly take in a full breath with the walls of the tunnel pressing against my ribcage. But all that ceased to matter when I caught sight of a faint orange glow in the distance. It was reflecting on the tunnel wall, dancing like the flicker of a candle fire. The glow brightened as I pulled myself towards it, and soon the luminous orange flicker was all around me. I could see the end of the tunnel then. It was a rough circular opening through which the orange glow was entering. I heaved myself towards it, shoulders scraping against the sides of the narrow passage. When I reached the opening, I pulled myself through it without so much as a look inside. It didn't matter what was in the enclave, surrounded by the dull orange glow, I could have been tumbling face first into an immediate death, but it didn't matter. I hadn't come this far to turn back. Not that turning back was even really an option, given how narrow the tunnel was. 
When I got to my feet and dusted myself off, I took in my surroundings. The room I was in didn't look man-made. The walls were misshapen and lopsided, the ceiling too low for me to even stand up straight. But was it a naturally formed cave? That I couldn't tell either. The first hint that it wasn't came from the fact that there was a telephone mounted on the wall. It was an old rotary phone, but with just one number on its circular dial. Next to it, in a small recess in the wall, stood a flickering lantern, the source of the room's orange glow. Sitting on the floor, just beneath the phone, was a pale, slender figure. He was the size of a child, but nothing about him looked youthful. He had what looked like an infection of some kind, his skin appearing to flake and peel away. His hair was short and well-kept, and he had tiny, rust-colored teeth. His eyes were red at the edges, pupils smaller than pinpoints. Looking at him gave me the feeling one gets when they're in the presence of a dangerous animal. I kept my eyes closely fixed on him, anticipating any sudden attack. As I stared at him, he stared back at me. The look in his eyes was one of abject indifference, as if I was nothing more to him than a cockroach crawling across the floor of his house. But soon his features shifted, and I saw a look of expectation come over him. His mouth hung slightly open, and I realized, looking at him, that he looked hungry, as if he were calculating how long it would take him to slither across the floor and sink his little teeth into me. Everything inside me was demanding that I crawl my way back out of the well, go home, go back to my son, go back to everything I have left. But something else, some intangible aspect of my psyche kept me rooted there, standing with a slight tremble in my legs and looking at the face of the devil. Why do you do this? I finally forced myself to ask. Why do you do this to people? A bemused smile came over his lips. I do it because people want me to, he said. Everyone does. Even you. You see, humankind needs me. They need there to be an ultimate source of evil, because they can't stand the idea that evil arises in the hearts of men. They can't stand the fact that the worst things that have ever occurred on planet Earth all arose from the hearts and minds of normal, simple people. On a fundamental level, the nature of humankind is one of unimaginable wickedness. But when you have a devil to attribute all the hate and sorrow and destruction to, mankind can go on thinking that they're a benevolent species. That's not true, I said. You're lying. You're trying to corrupt my mind, trying to get me to crumble just like you did to my wife. Lying? The devil asked. Look around you. You see what happens on this planet. You really think humans are a beacon of progress and productivity? I think we're flawed, I admitted. We're sinful, but we have a desire to do good. That's more than I can say for you, reveling in the suffering of others. We all have a job to do, he replied. At least I know what mine is. I know what my job is, I shot back. My job is to raise my son, now that you've robbed him of his mother. My job is to make this world a better place. He got to his feet, startling me with the sudden movement. Though I couldn't see his feet, I could hear them click and clack against the stone floor. 
It made me wonder if he had hooves at the end of his legs. As he walked slowly across the floor towards me, I felt for the gun in my waistband, though some part of me knew that trying to use it would be futile. Resignation had come over me, and I watched as evil incarnate approached. I was surprised at how willing I was to surrender, how willing I was to accept my approaching end. You really want to make the world a better place? The devil asked, only a few paces away from me now. Then come here. Let me tell you how. I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you the truth. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season Two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make Season 2 even more memorable together. <laughs>